For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Sunday, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? There's so many things to celebrate when we take the time to do so. But today's show came about because I was recently reading about a show that was at the George Street Playhouse, one of my favorite theaters in the country. Uh, and it was a show all about the life of Steve Gutenberg, the Gutenberg Bible. Great title. And I was reading about this, and I reached out for a possible interview. Uh, that was a few months ago. Uh, but it turns out that uh, the show is moving to the Bay Street Theater, another favorite theater of mine uh, in Sag Harbor. And God willing, I'm going to be there to see that. So I reached out about the possibility of doing an interview with Steve. And Judy Katz, their wonderful publicist, got back to me. And we set this interview up today. But not only do we have Steve, who will be appearing later on in the show, but we have the man who helped bring that show to life. And that's David Saint, who, of course, is the artistic director of the George Street Playhouse. David, welcome to the show. And I'm thrilled you're here today. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So I want to ask you, I mean, first of all, uh, when did the bug first bite you as a young, uh, was, were you a young kid? Did it happen later in life? Uh, and could you have imagined the life and career that you have created for yourself? Uh, no way could I possibly imagine. Um, I grew up uh, in Boston and uh, I decided when I got out of school to come to New York, I had been acting you know, in, in school production since I was a kid because I just fell in love with it. And um, I got a book by Uta Hagen called Respect for Acting, which was Great used book. in our acting classes in school. So I decided to uh, go to New York and audition for her class. You have to audition for her. You had to audition for her classes. And I said to myself, well, if I get in, I'm moving to New York. And if I don't, then I'll wait and see. And um, so I got in. So I had to move to New York immediately um, and did some survival jobs, took her class uh, once a week for, ended up being six years I studied with her. And wow. in that time, you know, people would come and go because you got a job and she always said, you should look at her class like a gym where you keep in shape with your acting chops, but you could go and come and go and do shows. So that's what I did. I was an actor first and I would, we had a great class. I mean, we had people like, oh, Matthew Broderick and uh, Christine Lottie and uh, even Rock Hudson in our class. So it was quite a group and people would come and go. And she taught me an enormous amount about acting, an enormous amount. And, um, you know, I've always had sort of mentors in my life. I've been very lucky that way. And during that time when I was studying with her, um, I, uh, Ann Mira and Jerry Stiller became sort of parents to me. Now that happened through a set of circumstances, but um, at some point along the way, I was coaching some actors and they suggested to me, why aren't you directing? And I said, 
I don't know how to balance a checkbook. And uh, they say, well, that's not what directors really do. What you do and your understanding of actors and what they need in a scene is what we need and what a director should do. So uh, through some recommendations of them, I got a job assisting people and then uh, like Doug Hughes and Dan Sullivan. And then finally, I started directing on my own. And one of the first shows I directed was actually written by Ann Mira and it was called Afterplay. And we did it at I Manhattan it very well. And we did it at Manhattan Theater Club and then it moved uh, to an off-Broadway run. And then I did it in Los Angeles and I did it a lot of places. And through Anne Mirror and uh, really through Anne, I met one day who came to see the play, Arthur Lawrence. And Arthur Lawrence, the famous writer and director, and he was extremely complimentary to me about my work. And about a year or so later, I was in Seattle at Seattle Rep doing a workshop of a play. And I see this person crossing the street and I think, I think that's Arthur Lawrence. And I went over and sure enough, it was, he was doing a workshop of a play and I was directing a play. I said, how are you doing? He said, terrible. You want to go get a drink? And I said, sure. <laughs> and so we ended up having four or five dinners together in Seattle and uh, where he was not happy with what was being done with his play. But um, about a couple of months later, I got when I got back to New York, my agent called me and said, uh, I got a script here from Arthur Lawrence and he wants you to direct it. Oddly enough, just shows you how circle, you know, complete. Uh, he said they want to do it at a theater out on Long Island uh, called the Bay Street Theater in Santa Clara. Hey. And uh, Arthur wants to know if you want to direct it. And I, of course, was thrilled. And then my agent, as well as some others that I had gotten to know, said, I'd think twice about that. And I said, why? And they said, because he can be known to eat directly. Uh, David, your volume seems to be going down. Oh, sorry, Mike. No, that's okay. Yeah. Got in the way. Um, so I said, um, I from my agent and others, I heard, don't do it because he eats directors for breakfast. And I said, well, that has not been my experience with him, but it's been social. But I really have had great conversations with him and we seem to be on the same wavelength a lot so uh, let me read the play I read the play I love the play I said I'm doing the play and that was the beginning actually out at Bay Street uh, of my career with Arthur Lawrence and which went on to be quite extraordinary he was a mentor to me for years and I directed 11 of his works including at the end, he wanted me to be with him on Broadway to do uh, the production of Gypsy with Patti LuPone and then the production of West Side Story, his last two Broadway revivals. Mm. So I did those and that was an education, uh, you know, incredible education. And he said to me, I want you, at this point, we had known each other for over 25 years. And uh, he said, I want you to be the head of my estate when I pass on. And I want you to know everything that's important to me about these works, especially West Side Story, because that's mm -hmm. the most popular of all his works. So 
he went through that. I, I co-directed it with him and he went through every page, every line and told me what was important to him and what wasn't. He said, because, you know, as you go into the future, you're a lot younger than I am. And when you get, when you become the head of my literary estate, I want you to have information directly from me on how to deal with these properties in the future. So it was an incredible, it was like going to uh, doing my thesis on the works of Arthur Lawrence. And so that became a huge part of my life and led to me directing the national tour for four years. Then I had an incredible experience directing West Side Story in Tokyo at this brand new theater called uh, 360 stage around where the audience, it's sort of hard to explain to people, but the audience is on a big center of a donut and it turns without the audience knowing slowly. And it reveals through these screens, which you've had projections on that open up all around you and have basically 12 sets. So we were able, Anna Luizos was able to design some incredible settings, including Oh, a real Hudson River with real water that the guys fight and fall in during the rumble. And, uh, you know, a uh, double two-story buildings where you had an incredibly well-furnished and uh, propped uh, drugstore and the attic upstairs. And you had the Marie's bridal shop underneath her bedroom with the real balcony so that Tony climbs up and everything was almost like cinema. And oddly enough, I went right from that to work on the movie of West Side Story with Steven Spielberg. And, and um, that had come about through a process that I had met with him first um, before he met the others, mainly I think because he knew I was a director and I actually, small world, I had directed Amy Irving, his ex-wife in a play at George Street Playhouse. And so he knew about me and so he, we had this meeting together and it was incredible. So I ended up working for two years with Tony Kushner on the screenplay. And then when we got into filming, uh, I basically sat right next to Spielberg and he invited me there and said, I want you to be an associate producer on this film. So it was a, it was an incredible experience for me. Um, and, you know, Arthur had always said, if you're going to do another movie of West Side, and oddly enough, he wasn't a fan of the original, uh, as were not uh, 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 Sondheim or Bernstein. Mm -hmm. So uh, he said two things I, I would ask you to enforce. One, that it be written um, by a very intelligent writer who knows it's a movie, not a play. And I thought, well, Spielberg suggested Tony Kushner. So I went, check, you know. That. Oh. And then he said, and hopefully it would be directed by a real master of cinema. He said, I don't want somebody who's a theater director to direct the movie. I want it to be done by a real master of the art of cinema. So I thought, well, you can't do better than Steven Spielberg. So, um, so that's how that all happened. And that was a big chunk of my life. Meanwhile, against all this, and you can stop me at any time. No, I'm enjoying like, every bit of this. And I've got a lot I'm, of questions that are coming out of yeah, this. Good. I'm a locomotive. I'll just keep running and running. That's great. So, I love it. Um, 
during all this period, I had gone out to be an associate artistic director at Seattle Rep under Dan Sullivan. And then um, they were down to two of us to take over because Dan knew he was going to be leaving. And they chose this other person and so uh, who had already run theaters in the past. And I had never done that. I didn't even know I wanted to do that. That was Dan's idea. He said, I think you'd be good at it. And I think you can learn a lot by being my associate. <clears throat> so um, then as soon as I got back from that uh, time in Seattle, I was offered this job at George Street Playhouse. And believe it or not, it is. I thought I'd stay maybe three, four, five years. It's now three 20, years. 25 years. 25 years, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> so that's been a constant in my life, George Street Playhouse. Um, but, you know, one of the things I did was, um, at George Street was, we I did a play uh, of Arthur's starring Marlo Thomas. And I ended up doing three plays with Marlo Thomas at George Street. And it turns out one of her best friends is this producer named Julian Schlossberg. And so Julian came to me a couple of years ago and uh, actually just before the pandemic, I think, and said, listen, I've been talking to my friend Steve Gutenberg about trying to write a play about his life. Would you be interested in developing it with me? And then you could direct it at George Street. And I said, great. I had met Steve through Marlowe because he's also a good friend of Marlowe's. And um, so that's sort of bringing me up to date in the very quick version. And uh, and so then I, I worked on the play with Steve for a couple of years on shaping and forming the script. And then we did it at George Street. And now we're headed off to Bay Street again, where I started with Arthur a hundred years ago. That's amazing. And like I said, I'm hoping to get there. I'm, I'm going to Provincetown to do a show. And the week after I get back, I'm planning on getting to Bay Street to see this. So I can't wait. Um, I want to go back, uh, and then I'm, I've got a lot of questions based on everything you've just told me. <laughs> so okay. I want to go back to Boston. Uh, when you were growing up in Boston, did you have the opportunity uh, to do a lot of theater uh, there? I know that you said Respect for Acting, which was also when I was in high school and I discovered that book, it became my Bible. And yeah. when I came to New York in 1979, I also studied at HP Studios. Unfortunately, uh -huh. I didn't get into Uda's class. I didn't, uh, the class I wanted to get into uh, was booked and that's, they put me in another class. Uh, but I wanna ask you, when you were in Boston, did you get the opportunity to do a lot of theater? And number two, how did the book Respect for Acting end up in your hands? Huh, how did the book, um, I think, I went to BC High, Boston College High, and from the moment I arrived, I auditioned the first week for the first play. Um, I ended up doing uh, a play every month, I think, uh, for the entire four years I was there. So I would act in, in productions, and we had a very active drama department at BC High, and my high school teacher, uh, Kevin Kynock, who was the head of the drama department at BC High. He is the one who first gave us the book, Respect for Acting. And, um, you know, we all, all of us young actors, of course, 
ate it up like crazy. And it became, as you said, for you, it became our Bible, you know, and we tried to incorporate a lot of it. And then when I graduated school and I was going to New York, I thought, you know, I'm going, I want to go to New York, but the first thing I want to do is audition for Udis. So before I even, you know, moved to New York, I auditioned. And that sort of was a real turning point in my life. Um, and that made that validated my choice of going into the theater and of being an actor, um, you know, and um, it was a great experience. I mean, my parents had paid for my education and they said, but they told I had five brothers and it was like all of us were told the same thing. We will pay for your education <clears throat> all the way through. But when you get out and you go into the real world, you're on your own. And, you know, um, of course, I always knew that if I really got in trouble, I could move home. But at that time, when I was growing up, it was sort of a, it's changed now. But at that time, once you got out of, you know, school, education, and you were, you know, 21 years old, you, it was sort of a badge of honor to move out. <laughs> and you didn't well, want to be- I was 15, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, you don't want to be dependent on your parents anymore. <clears throat> and so um, I, I went to New York, I got a survival job. My first job was as a tour guide at Lincoln Center, uh, which was a great job. And then also working sales staff at Tiffany. And so, I, you know, and then I would go to my class every week with Uda. But in answer to your question, I, I had the bug from the time I was, oh, I think I was seven years old and I went on stage in my Catholic grammar school. I was the bubbling brook in the song of Bernadette. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first time. An auspicious start it was. Exactly. Uh, what year did you come to New York? I came to New York in 1980, I think. Okay, yeah. I came in 79. So for those who were not around at the time, it was a very different New York from what it is now. So right. when you arrived in New York, I always joke and say that, the, and it's not really a joke, but that when I came to New York, I was expecting the world of breakfast at Tiffany's and Sunday in New York. And what I arrived in was Taxi Driver and Midnight Cowboy, completely mm -hmm. different New York from the New York that I imagined. Um, but living closer to New York than I did, had you visited New York prior to coming to New York? I had, and I had seen some Broadway shows and gotten with a lot, mainly with some other actors in my high school uh, uh, drama department and the drama coach. We would come down and see two shows on a Saturday and stay in some very cheap hotel and then uh, see a matinee on Sunday and then take the bus back to Boston. Um, and some of those shows I saw ended up being, I got autographs afterwards from people like Jerry Orbach and Fritz Weaver. And, uh, and I ended up working with those actors later. So it's it, little did I know, of course, when I was just a young high school kid <clears throat> that I would ever even meet these people, let alone work with them. That's what I did. amazing story. I love hearing that. It's it's yeah. uh, so amazing. But um, and do you what do you recall from your audition uh, for HB and Uda Hagen? 
Uh, and what are some of the things that she instilled in you that you've carried through your entire career? Well, she liked people to audition with scenes. And I remember I auditioned with an actor, an actress, friend of mine, <clears throat> and we did a scene. And it went well, but then uh, she, the, she, she didn't, she, she accepted me, but not the friend that had asked me to audition mm. with her. So that was a little sort of tricky because I really was doing the scene for her sake. But then I, I got accepted. And then as you know, her first year, your first year with her, <clears throat> she concentrated on these exercises that are in her book. And then she didn't even get to scene work. And then the second year she would start assigning you scenes. And as I worked on the scenes, what I started to learn was not only just when I was doing a scene, but so important watching other people do their scenes and hearing what she would say to them. And I, I played this game with myself where I thought, what would I say, you know, in my head before she began to speak? And I, I gradually learned what she was interested in. And that's what I became interested in, which in a nutshell was finding the truth in a scene. Mm -hmm. So, and with that, she used every, you know, trick in the book or every tool in her arsenal to get there. Whether it was using the, <clears throat> you know, exploring the character and the previous circumstances and the world of the play and what you come into that scene with and what you want and what your motivation is in each beat of the scene. And, Ultimately, I have to admit that years later, when I started directing, that's really what I did as a director, the same thing. I would examine each scene beat by beat and examine the truth underlying the text. So in other words, what was the emotional truth of the characters? What was the subtext? And several years later, I had directed for Arthur for a few shows and he wrote a biography uh, called Original Story By. And there's a section in the book he wrote about me, which was really lovely. But he, what he talked about, he said, David's strength is digging to find the emotional subtext in a play, finding what the hidden truth of the play was and communicating that to the actors and finding a way to work with the actors to let them uncover that in their own personal life. Um, you know, Uta used and believed in this whole notion of substitution, um, where you find something in your life that's maybe many times only known to you, and that you use that set of circumstances in that event to find if that's the right emotional center yes. of the scene you're in, and to use that um, substitution for the emotional value of what was in the scene. Um, it's funny, you know, I was just talking to some friends recently about <clears throat> the way the world is, you know, constantly changing, but especially in the last four or five years right. and, and during the pandemic and all these movements and, you know, and it's interesting because the, the first time I ever heard uh, an emotional trigger, a trigger warning. First time I've ever heard that was in Uta's class, where it was used almost in the exact opposite way it's being used today. Mainly that she would say, our job as an actor is to find that gold 
in our lives that we can apply to any given character, any given scene. And searching for those, you want to look for the emotional triggers from your life, which will set off the uh, emotional response that may be right something you can use now. So in that sense, the emotional triggers were always the good thing you were searching for, according to Uta. And then years later, you know, I have many friends who teach acting at universities in New York, NYU, and everywhere. And they said that one of the big things you have to be aware of now, young people do not want to be emotionally triggered. Complete opposite. Complete opposite. And in so much so, I mean, there was one case where this friend of mine had students and, he, you know, he had assigned some scene from Augusto Sage County and uh, uh, there was history in one of the young actors' uh, lives of, um, you know, a child uh, molester, which is one of the characters in Augusto Sage County, although not even, by the way, the scene he assigned. Mm-hmm. And they protested and brought him on the carpet in front of the faculty, in front of the higher ups, and said, "We, he's not a, um, allowed to assign scenes like this because it's an emotional trigger for me." Well, you know, my response is, "Well, what happens if you know anyone in your life who's committed suicide? Can you not do death of a salesman? Um, you know, if there's been an assault or a rape, can you not do uh, streetcar named desire?" I mean, let's not even talk about Shakespeare or the Greeks, you know? So I thought, what's going on? Because I understand abuse in the theater and that's obviously not right. But we have to be careful because, you know, if you start saying that any of these great plays that I've just mentioned and many, many more, um, you don't want to work on them, study them or see them because they have an emotional trigger for you, then why are you going into the theater? I mean, that's what we do. And if a play doesn't emotionally trigger some big emotional response from an audience, it's probably not a very good play. Yeah. Well, David, you've been an artistic director now, you said for 25 years, you've directed you know, so many great works uh, even prior to that. Yeah. Um, in, in this climate today where what you're talking about is such a triggering point, how do you navigate the waters of the world that we're living in now with uh, your, I mean, with keeping the artistic integrity of the original body of work and keeping that going uh, when it seems like the floodwaters and everything is against you in the theater. How do you navigate through all of this? Well, I think a lot of it in terms of the internal, so in terms of the the actors you're gonna be using and the designers, uh, it a lot of it's getting ahead of the game. So, you know, and I speak, I use a great casting director, Pat McCorkle, uh, for years now for George Street. And I say, you know, we have to make sure they read the play if it's a new play. And one would assume if they're auditioning for a classic play that they have read it. Uh, But even then, I want to make sure they've read the play. 
so that if there are any issues on a personal level with that actor in taking part in that play, then they shouldn't audition. They should withdraw from the audition. Because once we choose to do a play, um, we're going to give it the best you know, production we can, staying faithful to the author's intent. And therefore, you know, you, you uh, I mean, I've, listen, I've directed West Side Story so many times and yeah. around the world and all. I mean, if you, for instance, if you were a young man and you had a violence in your life where, you know, one of your family members, let's say your brother, was killed uh, in, an, in a gang fight or killed by a gun, by being shot by a gun. If you can't use that and you're okay with doing that in the show, then, then don't, don't audition because we're not going to change the play. It's, you know, in that case, it's a classic and that's the story. And you learn from the horror. As Arthur said, he can summarize West Side Story in one sentence, uh, which is the struggle to find love in a world of bigotry and violence. Well, if you don't have the bigotry and violence, you don't have the show. And so if you're going to be associated with that show in terms of an artist, then you have to be open and accepting and willing to, you know, to embrace that subject. Um, and if you have problems, I mean, it's different in an acting class, I guess, because, you know, you're not actually doing a production. You're just doing a scene in a class. <clears throat> but I'm talking about professional theater where, you know, whether it's a classic or if it's a new play, if it's a new play, the last thing on, on earth I want is an unhappy actor in the rehearsal room, the first week of rehearsal saying things like, oh my God, I did, I can't play that scene or I didn't know that scene that this play was gonna deal with that subject. Well, then don't, don't audition, don't be in it because we are gonna do the play as written. Um, you know, we started a, a, a play uh, at our theater called American Sun that when, then went on to Broadway and Netflix. And, and that play was about an interracial couple whose son was uh, pulled over by the police. And then you the nightmare waiting to find out where he is, the young boy who's 17. And you find out at the end of the play, I mean, I don't want to be a spoiler, but it has a tragic ending. Mm -hmm. And violence and violence by police. And if that's an issue that triggers you in the wrong way, for instance, as an actor, then don't audition, don't audition, because that's what the play is about. And I think uh, while we're still living in a world that's not, you know, censored to the point of censoring all art, we need to stay truthful to those stories. Just you, like, uh, excuse me, but are you concerned about the direction that everything seems to be going as far as, um, you know, and, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all, but, but you know, political correctness and, you know, and uh, a revisal of a show because things that happened. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, for instance, <clears throat> the anti-LGBTQ, uh, you know, is frightening to me. I mean, as a gay man, I'm like, well, you know, uh, my, my predecessors and even I marched 
before, you know, silence equals death back in the full height of the AIDS epidemic. <clears throat> I'm not going to let those that progress and those rights be swept under by some right wing, uh, you know, militants. It, it's absurd. Uh, I mean, you know, Arthur, I have a lot of Arthur's stuff I inherited. <clears throat> including one of his Tony Awards, which was for directing La Caja Fall, the original mm -hmm. Broadway production. Do you know, so we still, I still, the foundation that is Arthur's in, which I'm the head of his foundation as well, which is another whole subject. But that foundation, we still get royalties from La Caja Fall. And, you know, I'm very aware that in some states, in the South mainly, um, they're not allowing La Caja of Hall to be done. Right. I mean, this is shocking to me. This is not a, <clears throat> La Caja of Hall, although it centers around a gay couple, one of whom is a drag queen, um, they, who puts on shows, um, the show is really about family and it's about them and their child uh, who's getting married to a woman uh, accepting them as a loving parents. So it's really very conservative at its heart, but they're outlawing it because they don't want to see men in women's clothes, which is uh, astonishing to me because that has happened for years and years and years and years. I mean, back to shows like Charlie's Aunt and, you know, I mean, many, uh, let alone Shakespeare, who has, you know, Viola in Twelfth Night dressing as a boy. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, this kind of stuff has been around forever, but suddenly there is a new wave. Uh, I'm hoping, my answer to that, Richard, is I'm hoping that this will pass. I certainly hope. And what, are you, what is your thought on revisals when shows are coming in and they feel that, I mean, <laughs> I have my own thoughts uh, about, rewriting the author's um, original intent. Um, I love what you said earlier about, uh, you know, the remake of, or the reimagining, I should say, it's not really a remake of West Side Story, which I love, by the way. Uh, and there were, I have friends, we got into arguments over this, who said they would not see the film under any circumstances because they loved the 1961 version. I said, right. this has nothing to do with the 1961 version. It's a completely different work of art. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that we are, we can look at things through a different eyes and a, through a different lens, I think is wonderful. But sometimes I get the feeling that sometimes the creative team may go a little too far in terms of wanting to clean up what truly was the situation 25, 50 years ago. Yes, I agree. Hence, uh, and therefore I come as the uh, representative of the literary estate. I'm the head of the Lawrence estate. So whenever a major production uh, is done on Broadway, the West End, anywhere around the world, of any of Arthur's pieces, particularly West Side, since you were talking about that, I have to be consulted and I have to approve. Now on stage, don't forget, you know, even when I directed the national tour, I mean, some somebody threw a glass of champagne in my face in, in uh, Los Angeles when we opened because of 
uh, first of all, I love this because our Arthur had added some Spanish into the uh, production. Not a lot, <clears throat> but nevertheless, some. I saw the production. Yeah, and uh, and this guy threw this glass of water, not water, it was champagne, in my face and said, we're in America, speak English. And I thought, oh boy. So I guess the point of this show really didn't come across to you. Um, you're a perfect walking example of the bigotry uh, Arthur was writing about. But that nevertheless, there are times where uh, there have been productions <laughs> uh, where I have been called in and they wanted to change things and I said no. Basically for me, it's the essence. And this is what Arthur talked to me a lot about. He said, look, if somebody's gonna make a new movie of West Side Story, the this movie of 1961 is dated. First of all, Arthur didn't write the screenplay. You know, it was written by Ernest Lehman. Right. And, and many people think that the movie came first, which of course is nonsense. Um, and so, you know, people have their own versions of history that they have. And they have, particularly of West Side, <clears throat> they have such ownership of it. And I don't mind that. It's like, well, okay, it meant so much to you that you have been a crusader for the true West Side Story. But they talk about why did you, why the hell did you move cool and uh, uh, crocky? You know, you move them to different places in the story. And, and my first response is, no, I'm afraid you're wrong. The movie in 1961 moved them to different places. And that's one of the reasons Arthur hated the film. And so, you know, it was, sometimes it's just whatever's out there becomes your truth. And so people became such unbelievable fans, fanatics about the 1961 movie. Many of those same fans had no idea what the stage version was before right. they had no idea they think the movie was the beginning well it wasn't and there were a lot of things that were in that 1961 movie that people really objected to um and and we don't even have to get to you know That's uh, a <laughs> we can go right. on item by item yes yeah, true and, you know, I mean, even the notion of casting the correct ethnicity wasn't a concern in 1961. Well, you can't do that today. You know, you can't you can't do West Side Story and not have Latinos playing those parts. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's it's just you can't do that anymore. <clears throat> so there are a lot. But there are other things. I mean, I've had in the past few years a major production around the world, one which had um, Maria kill herself at the end of the play to be more like uh, Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, as Arthur often said, I didn't write Juliet, I wrote Maria. And that character, Maria, is a very strong individual. She is not gonna kill herself. And um, so, you know, he made that change. But then this director decided I'm gonna, he said it in present day and he had Maria jump in front of a subway train and kill herself at the end of the play. And then be reunited in heaven with Tony, which, you know, Arthur would have, his head would have exploded, <laughs> you know. So we had to say no, cease and desist. 
Um, there were other times where, you know, people don't get the message of the story. They don't understand what's important and what's not. I mean, some of the, even the dialogue, and Arthur told me this, you know, you know, years later, that some of the dialogue was dated because he was writing at a time where people were used to musicals like Guys and Dolls, where, you know, it was, there was humor to uh, liven things. And it was very rare, except in the world of opera, that any musical had your leading character is dead by the end of the play. That just didn't happen. You know, this was a different theater. <laughs> yeah, it became musical theater instead of musical comedy. And, um, but, you know, so honoring those things, it was another famous production done in the past recent time who wanted to cut Maria's speech about how do you fire this gun, you know, and cut the line, I can kill now because I hate now. Well, that's in that one line, and I told the director, you don't understand the play. If you want to cut that line, you don't understand the play. Because that basically is the climax of the whole play. Mm -hmm. Mar Maria has changed from being open and accepting to another race to now being racist and being uh, violent, where she says, I can kill now because I hate now. How this world that she has landed in has basically destroyed her. So, you know, things like that are very, very important. Um, I, Arthur said, used to say in terms of, um, you know, setting costumes, all that. He said, listen, it could happen in on another planet where one gang is uh, green people and the other gang are blue people. But as long as we understand that it's two gangs that are, um, filled with hatred and bigotry towards the other. Well, thanks for all of that. I mean, it, just unraveling all of that's amazing. Uh, when are you going to write your book, David? <laughs> you know, it's funny. People keep asking me that. Even just my relationship with Arthur and Steve Sondheim and all those people for years. I, you know, I, I just don't. Sometimes my ego works in such a way that I want to say, you know, people, why do people want to hear about what I have to say or my, but I do realize that my, my marketing director at George Street asked me just one weekend, could you help me with some memories of your favorite memories of George Street in the past 25 years? Well, I started writing and all of a sudden they just came pouring out and I decided to do 25 memories of 25 years. Yeah. And uh, they just, and I realized by the end of it, wow, I, a lot of things have happened to me. I've been very blessed with the people that I've worked with and the mentors I've had and the experiences I've gone through. And um, so there is a lot, and that wasn't even about Arthur, which is a whole well, other. Let's book. talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about your most recent memory, and that's the Gutenberg Bible. Uh, you uh, mentioned how this came about. Um, what was the process of putting this together and putting, um, you know, a true story, someone who is still with us, telling his story on stage? And I, I was surprised to hear it's not a one man show. Uh, no. he, you know, there are other actors in the show. Uh, no. But bringing his life story 
uh, to life on stage? What was the process? Well, it was a very interesting process. Unlike most I have done, even working on new plays, was that he had written a book and he and Julian said, you know, I think you need to write a play about this. And he didn't sort of know where to begin. So we said, listen, write down everything. Write a play with all the favorite, your favorite parts, you know, of your life. And um, just write it as it comes and don't hold back and write everything. And then I will, one of my greatest um, thrills is editing and working on a script, finding what's important and what's not and um, and shaping it. Now, so it, it went in several stages. First of all, Steve sent uh, 350 pages. <laughs> I said, well, you really did write everything. And you didn't, <laughs> and you didn't hold back. I thought, you know, 350 pages, you know, usually with most plays, it's about, you know, a page a minute or maybe a little over a minute a page. So I thought, you know, this is going to be, you know, an eight hour, you know, journey. I can't do that. But let's let me take it. And I started editing and I started just cutting away and going. One of the decisions I made early on with Steve was that he should play himself all the way through it. And then we should hire, I arbitrarily said, three actors. Uh, two male, one female, to cover all these other wild and crazy characters in your life. And that's what we did. And as it ended up, three actors play 90 roles. Wow. And the show is 90 minutes. So it's basically... And, and the other thing I found is that you know, he's had a lot of very funny, funny experiences with very colorful characters. I mean, you know, everyone from Merv Griffin to Alan Carr to, you know, his parents uh, to uh, Gregory Peck and uh, Laurence Olivier. And, you know, I mean, his career is amazing. And with all these incredible people in it. So I found early on and then I had to figure out a way to stage it. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to approach this whole thing. What I call it is like a new age vaudeville. So there, you remember, uh, I'm sure, the laugh, Rona Martin's laughing. Of course, and, yes. And one of the inspirations I took, I'd never seen it done on stage, but where they had that laugh-in wall, the joke wall where, right, people yes. open the windows, pop out, say a few lines, and then shut the window and go away. And I thought, well, there are certain characters in this play that are come on for two lines or three lines and then they disappear. There are other lines that have more, other characters have more extended scenes. Mm -hmm. So I decided, for instance, he goes through a million agents. And, you know, uh, one of the funny things is when he got one of his agents decided, got him a gig, if you will, uh, presenting at the Academy Awards. And, um, each agent, there were like four of them in a row that claimed ownership of getting that gig, you know, which is very Hollywood and very funny. Mm -hmm. So I decided to keep them very short and sweet and just have a window pop open. Hi, it's so-and-so from William Morris. I got you a great job. And another one, but I don't know how we did it here, but we got you a job uh, on the Oscars and your date is going to be Jeannie Francis. And boom. And each four of each one of them pop in and out so quickly. 
that the ability to do that, where you don't have to have an actor cross on stage and then walk off stage and all of that, they just appear, boom, and gone, um, heightened the comedy in the piece. So by the time we got to actually putting it together and our first audience, I, you know, it was about five people, you know, just in the rehearsal room. And I thought it was very funny, but, you know, and my instincts are usually good, but you never know till it lands. And those five people were falling off their chairs laughing. And I thought, okay, it works. And Julian turned to me and said, with thumbs up, we got something here. Then <clears throat> the other big part of shaping the piece was for me to find, like Arthur, like Uta, an emotional through line for Steve's character in the play. And that seemed to be, every once in a while, he would talk about, or in other words, a, a monologue to the audience, what he learned from that past, from that previous experience mm. and how it changed his life. And so I called those my conscience monologues where every once in a while we would have Steve just talk directly to the audience, lose everybody else, and just tell him, explain to us what he learned on that step of his journey. And most of the time it was easy because the lesson was family and loved ones matters so much. It kept him grounded throughout all those years. And it's what he kept going back to. He was lucky he grew up with a very loving family. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but so that, that becomes a big part of the show. And then, you know, for the past six years, Steve had been a caretaker for his dad, whom he loved dearly, who was dying and Steve took care of him, learned how to do the dialysis at home, really was a hands-on caretaker hands -on. Wow. and didn't do any work in theater or film. And then last summer, his father passed away. So after the first read through, just in a room in a rehearsal studio, I, I took Steve aside and I said, can I ask you, would you mind bringing the play up to date at the end by talking about your dad? And he's got tears in his eyes. He's such a mensch, this guy. You can't believe him. He, the reason I think he has played so many guy-next-door types that are just so friendly and, and uh, lovable is that that's who Steve is. That literally is who Steve is. He is just the nicest guy in the world. So when I asked him to do that, he got tears in his eyes and he said, I would love that because then it would be a real dedication to my father. And I said, great. Well, he went away. He wrote a, 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 you know, a couple of uh, pages of dialogue and uh, had us all in tears. And one of the things I found from our audiences at George Street was that they laughed hysterically all the way through, but we had talkbacks. And at the talkbacks, the kept, phrase kept coming up, which was from audience members saying, this is a play we need to see right now. The same sentence, this is a play we need for now. This is the perfect play for right this moment. And so I started asking people, what do you mean by that? Why do you say that? And they all had the same response. They said, because by the end of the play, I was so moved. And I realized that I was so moved because I was seeing a decent, loving individual. 
Wow. And I am so bombarded with the opposite of that in my life, on the news, on the, you know, I, there are no more loving, decent people. And it's very hard to, to find that in your life. So here's a show that values and really is a testament to that kind of person. Um, and that you can be generous, kind, loving, and family-oriented and still become successful. That's amazing. Let's give the audience just a teaser of the show. Here it oh, is. Sure. Now, he was scheduled to join us today. I don't know what happened. I don't know if he's having trouble getting on or what the issue is. So hopefully we'll be able to do uh, another show with him at some other time. Uh, yes, I, I urge you to to reschedule because this guy offstage, I mean, so many people wanted to stay after the show and meet him because it's almost hard to believe, but he is actually that same lovable guy that you see in all these movies. So uh, I think your audience would love seeing an interview behind the scenes with him because he has a million stories. Don't forget, I cut. <laughs> I cut. <laughs> it's, it's, it's down to... It's so the other uh, uh, 300 pages uh, we'll put on the show here. So uh, And now it's 69 pages. So... Uh is the entire cast going over to Bay Street with uh, with the yes, show? Yes, the entire cast is going over. I think there's a few uh, days where one of the actors had a pre-conditioned you know, conditioned co conflict. So we have a great uh, understudy coming on who's a wonderful actor named Stephen DeRosa that I've worked with, uh, who's been on Broadway many times. And he's also great. But those three actors are hysterical and you could see you didn't hear dialogue in that clip but what you did see is they have to do not quick changes i'm talking miraculous changes like instant changes so they add a lot of pieces wigs hats uh, glasses jackets different things at one point they become there's a very funny scene where um where uh, Steve was had gotten cast in Alan Carr's movie, <clears throat> Can't Stop the Music. And this was a movie which was starred the Village People and um, Valerie Directed Perron. by Nancy Walker. <laughs> Nancy Walker, you're right. <clears throat> and so before they started shooting, they said Valerie wanted to meet Steve at her house in Beverly Hills. And so she was having a pool party. And he went and Valerie, and this is all true, Valerie and her best friend, uh, uh, Brigitte, I think it's her, is it Brigitte, yeah, uh, uh, or Bernadette, uh, they come and they are, arrive at the door topless. Um, and then they bring Steve in and all the village people are there in little speedos um, around the pool. 
Um, and so that's turned into a scene that's really uh, laugh out loud funny. The audience screams with laughter during that. Uh, but because those three actors have to play all the parts. So one of the guys <laughs> plays Valerie Perrine in a wig and we have these fake, the costume designer, Lisa Zinni, who did a great job. Uh, she, she came up with these like unbelievable uh, rubber um, bosoms that so they can just put it on over there. So there's no nudity. I call it simulated nudity. <laughs> um, but it is hysterical. And one of the guys has to play Valerie because the other, the lady is playing the friend. Um, so uh, it's, we have a lot of that going on. We're cross gender people with a woman plays men, the men play women. Um, but because there's so many crazy characters in his life. Um, and uh, so they're constantly changing. So it, it really is like a vaudeville show. It's very funny. And then before you know it, watch out because the audience is, ends in tears, you know. Amazing. Uh, will there be continue to be talkbacks uh, after the performances in Big I don't know. How, you know, I haven't asked that question. We have a production meeting tomorrow. And I will ask them. Uh, I assume they probably do. Most theaters, most regional theaters do have them. <clears throat> um, but I will uh, ask about that. I know we did at George Street, but, you know, that's my theater. So I run it that way, you know. Um, and are there plans for this to go on the road beyond the Bay Street Theater? Yes, we uh, hope so. Hope. We're already talking to uh, booking agencies that could book it. I mean, because right now I could name 10 cities around the country that would eat this up immediately. Yeah. And especially if Steve, you know, is willing to tour with it, which he is, which he is. And then we also want to talk about how, when and where if moving it into New York, you know. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot of possibility. We have a lot of people who've already seen the show. We're having a lot more people coming to see it out at Bay Street in Zag Harbor. Well, I'm wishing you a long run. Uh, David, I could go on for days with you. I want to respect your time and this within the hour. I'm sorry that Steve did not make it here today, but That's I've enjoyed okay. this so much that uh, yeah. uh, if he happens to see this later, and I hope he will, uh, I hope so. An open invitation for you to come on the show and uh, to tell more of the story. Great, um, and he has a million stories, even beyond the play. So I'm going to give you the final word, uh, but before you do, um, I'm going to give my final word. And then when you speak, it could be about anything that we spoke about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't speak about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with. Uh, first of all, Judy Katz, thank you so much uh, for making this happen. Uh, she the best. Yeah. And I also want to thank each and every one of you for spending an hour with us, uh, whether you're doing it now or later on when this is on YouTube. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, David and I both will agree on this subject. Uh, when you take the time to go to the theater and to spend time with us, we don't take it lightly. It's very important. And it's very important that you continue to go out and support live theater. If you can get to the Bay Street Theater next month, it's playing through the 20th, am I correct? Uh, yes, but I think they're already hoping to extend it beyond that. Uh, that that's great. And like I said, I'm hoping to get there around the 15th. Will you be there at that time or? Uh... Yeah, I'll be, I have a house. In fact, uh, I'm right now in Arthur's old house in Quag where oh, I live. Wow. 
um, uh, out. But uh, so I will be out there for rehearsals and for through previews and the opening, well, which I think sure is the. And so, then I'll uh, then I'll come, then I'll be here some. So I'll drop over and continue to see it. You know. That's great. Uh, well, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Pick up the phone, call someone. David, I want you to do the same thing. Pick up the phone and call someone you haven't spoken to in a long time. Uh, just let them know how they've made a difference in your life. Uh, we've learned these incredible stories today of the great people along the way in David's life. They've all had the pleasure. Uh, David's had the pleasure of working with them, but they've all had the pleasure of working with David. These people are very important in our lives. So pick up the phone, not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call and let that person know how they've made a difference in your life. And trust me, you'll make a difference in their life. I have a dear friend. He says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that, David, I'm going to leave the screen. Uh, it's all yours. And when you say goodbye, the final credits will roll so you don't have to worry about how to end the show. Thank you so much for being here. And again, everybody, make it a great week. Go and see live theater. Here's David Saint. Well, that's a lovely message you leave us with. And I want to add to that. One of the things I discovered several years ago was that Many times we do something for someone, uh, a gift, a generous gift of some, some way, some shape or form. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes we get confused that it's the thanks that we are after or the appreciation and maybe even a, you know, a return favor from those people when we give a gift. And my mother once taught me when, when she was dying, actually, of ALS, and she said, you know, the best thing are the anonymous ones. And she told me a few gifts she had given to people and young people, and um, she was a painter and artist, and she would just buy things, like art supplies for a young, struggling artist, and it would be delivered anonymously. And she never let them know she was the one who sent them the gift. And I thought that was quite extraordinary. So I've tried that a few times. And I must tell you, it is the best gift you can give yourself. To know that you have done something for someone else and you've never taken credit for it. That's, to me, true generosity and true gift giving. So... I would say, give the gift of theater. You don't even have to tell them that you bought the tickets. Just have a gift certificate arrive at their house. Because the theater is a true gift in the sense that I believe it's where we all meet to make each other better people. And then if a play is good, it will lift you up and it will change your life. So with that, I hope you will all change your life by going to see a show at a theater near you. If you're near Bay Street in Sag Harbor this August, please come and join us. And I hope you all have a great summer. Thank you.